How can we have a life vow when there is no other time than this moment? How can we have a vow when there is no other place than right here? One way we might think about this is like a kid playing a computer game, one of those driving computer games. And the whole time he's staying in one spot while on the screen endless terrain and obstacles and things come flashing by. And on the screen, speeding up and slowing down and swerving right and swerving left, all without moving, all without going anywhere. And even though the car appears to be going through all sorts of situations, nothing really moves. There's just the one screen. We get caught in thinking that we are the car, that we are that thing which is moving through all of this endless, varied scenery, that it's all nothing but this lump that we regard as ourselves moving through that thing we regard as the world. But practice and meditation is taking a step back from that lumpishness. It's taking a step back to, instead of being engaged with a computer game as though it's real, taking a step back and seeing, oh, it's just a game. It's just a screen. It's just movement. And seeing that we never really go anywhere. That we're always right here. Even though everything is constantly moving and constantly changing. We're always right here. And in a way, there's never anything to do or any place to go. Well, if that's the case, what meaning does a vow have? If that's true, that everything is empty, everything is found right in this moment, there is no place to go because there is no other place, there is no future or past, it's all right here, right now. If that's the truth, then how and why should we make any vows? The, the expression of no place to go, the expression of nothing to do, the expression of shunyata or emptiness, is the world of going and coming, picking up and putting down. And while it's true there is no place to go and nothing to do, and there's only this moment which includes all past, present, and future, all past and future, there is no present in a way, the expression of that moment, the way it is lived, is with all of the comings and goings, with past, present, and future. This contradiction, this paradox, is in a way the ultimate spiritual paradox. That everything is one, and yet 
we live our life as though everything was two or three or manifold. That everything is whole and complete, lacking nothing. And yet everything we see is incomplete, inadequate in some way. And so how do we work with these two truths? First off, it's very important that as we're meditating and as we're sitting and as we're breathing and being breathed, the mind that is constantly trying to grab, to understand, to put it into a box, to make it fit our particular notion, that that mind itself is what gets us confused. That we think that these things have a reality that is beyond reality. That is, we think that there are lumps, we think that there are things. We think that because it's a thing, with the mind we can grab it, we can hold on to it. We think states of mind, whether they're really beautiful, wonderful states, we think that they are things. And if we could just hold on to that state, just get back to that state, then everything would be well. We've become lost in the computer game at that point. Good things come, difficult things come. Easy things come, hard things come. When we're working on a koan like Mu or Who Am I, it's pointing us to the oneness side of things. It's pointing us to the side of Buddha nature, of non-separation, of neither this nor that. When there is nothing but Mu, that which is saying Mu is Mu, that which knows Mu is Mu, that which is seeing Mu is Mu. There's only one thing. Even the thought of one thing is just Mu. And the same is true with a koan like, Who am I? Mu in a way says, Nothing, 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 nothing. Anything you see is not it, not it, not it, not it. And who am I in a way does the, just the opposite. It says, Yes, 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 yes. Everything I see is just it. It is precisely because that there is this state of oneness and emptiness that things change. It is precisely because of shunyata that things arise, exist, and disappear. If they were not empty, they would not arise. Something does not come from nothing. Nothing does not come from something. And so things that arise are neither empty nor full, neither exist nor do not exist, neither before or after. They are just as they are, whole and complete, inadequate, But the mind keeps trying to want to pin it down, to say it's not the whole paradox, it's not the whole complicated, simple thing. But that in order for I, me, and my to feel good, to like a certain thing, to feel comfortable, 
I'd like it to be like this. And as soon as we say, I'd like it to be like this, we start trying to divide up the undividable. And of course, that happens with our practice. It happens with, with our breath. We are being breathed all the time by the universe. All the time, whether we're asleep or whether we're awake, whether we're conscious or whether we're unconscious. All the time. And then the mind steps in on top of it and says, no, I'd like it to be that way. I'd like it to be this way. If I only breathe this way. When all we have to do is let the breath breathe us. And we keep talking about attention and mindfulness and putting the mind in the breath. Only so that that separation that we have, instead of us being out here judging, 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 that we merge the two. The mind is the breath. Wherever our attention is, is what we are. There's nothing but breath. And so we're just like a kid sitting in front of a computer screen. It's all a dream, and yet we play it passionately with enthusiasm. There's only the truth of this moment, but there's the other truth that we hear and see and smell and taste and touch. There is the truth of there and here. We keep wanting to make it this or that. It's either whole or it's not whole. It's either empty or it's full. The truth is beyond both. So as we live our life, we have a choice between whether we directly experience and see clearly, or whether we are very confused. And seeing clearly and being confused does not mean that we necessarily know it in the sense that we can read it in a book. In a way, real deep confidence and truth is a matter of deep faith. Because that side of oneness cannot be known. If it were known, it would be two things. There would be a knower and that which is known. So in a way, it has to be the side of deep, deep, deep faith. And if we're playing this game of life wholeheartedly, if we're practicing wholeheartedly, then it becomes very alive. Then it becomes very lively. Then it becomes a free flow of the truth of our lives. And in this sense, we take a vow. We have a life, the motor is running, time is running out, what should we do with it? We can either live our life at random, confused and directionless, half asleep, or we can wake up and decide, in this dreamlike world, what am I going to do? What am I going to cultivate? What am I going to work toward? Because we have a mind, because we have eyes, because we have this life, we make a vow. This vow itself is the expression of oneness, of emptiness. All things are one. That includes the path leading to oneness. It includes oneness. 
All things are one. It includes separation. It includes this and that. It's all one thing. From the perspective of this and that, it's two things. From the perspective of I and you, it's two things. From the perspective of my life and the future, it's two things. But it's only one thing. And that's something we have to have a mixture of deep faith and deep experience. The path and the goal, doing and not doing. So from one perspective, the path is that which leads to the goal. From another perspective, the path itself is the goal. There are people who have read and heard about teachings of oneness, this moment, that's all there is. And then there's this subtle sense that it doesn't matter what we do. That everything is one, one thing is as good as another. And just flow through life without a real vow or commitment. Try to do that. The very best, they're stuck on emptiness. Because we, there's a state in practice we can actually see the emptiness side of things, but that's only a transitory state. In the ten oxfording pictures, it's the eighth oxfording picture where there's just a big empty circle. Nothing exists. But there still are stages beyond that. The very best, these people are stuck in emptiness. And at the worst, they're just confused at the mercy of their thoughts and at the mercy of the sense of I. We all set up a vow to become awakened, to know the truth, to liberate beings, to help others, to overcome our own shortcomings. These are the goals of the path. And these goals are not the path. The path may be how, may be the goal, but the goal is not the path. So we have the, the aspiration for awakening, but we practice moment to moment. We have to express that aspiration in doing zazen, maintaining our relationships, maintaining our friendships, supporting others, keeping our word, practicing generosity, all of the Eightfold Path. So from the perspective of goal, everything is one. And every step of the path is perfect. From the perspective of path, there are important things to do, and they are not the goal. And these two are simultaneously true. So from the perspective of path, that means the perspective of I, me, and my, the perspective of I am sitting here. Each of us has his or her own practice. From that perspective, there are ways of practicing that are effective. There are ways of practicing that are beneficent. There are ways of practicing that are beneficial. And those are very important. Those are the steps of the path. From the perspective of no I, no me, no body, no mind, all those things are completely the goal. So as long as we have a body and a mind, we're on the path. If there's no body, no mind, there's no goal and no path.
in the verses on the faith mind, it says the more we talk and think on this, the further from the truth we'll be. And so we try to put that which is indescribable into descriptive words. We try to understand that which is inconceivable through concepts. And of course they're inadequate. Of course it doesn't make any sense. And so finally, it just gets down to path. It just gets down to what do we do with this breath? What do we do with this breath? What do we do with this breath? Now, another way we can look at this is there are causes and there are results. If we're sitting here and we're thinking, I want the result of samadhi. I want to be in samadhi. I want to have deep concentration. And that's the goal. And we're busy sitting here thinking, goal, 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 goal. We'll never get there. But as soon as we begin to focus on and sit with the causes of that goal, the path, then sooner or later, without our even knowing it, it comes. So as we're practicing, we're not focusing on what are the results I'm going to get, what kind of insight am I going to have, what kind of kinsho am I going to have, what kind of enlightenment am I going to have, what kind of samadhi am I going to have, how is my heart going to break open. All of that is just a distraction. It's just a waste of time. We focus on the causes that lead to those things. And what are the causes that lead to those things? This breath. This moment. Letting go. Seeing with the mind the truth. This moment, this moment, this moment. We have no control over when something might appear in the future. Deep awakening may come at any moment. It's outside of time. But we do have control over what we're doing on the path right now. Are we allowing the mind to just wander aimlessly? Or are we bringing it back and bringing it back and bringing it back? Are we allowing the mind to be filled with thoughts of anger, irritation, or greed? Or are we letting go and letting go and letting go? We focus on these causes, then the goal appears. If we focus on the goal, it's always like a donkey with a carrot. We never get there. Carrot's always out in front of us. So forget about awakening. Forget about samadhi. Forget about deep insights. Forget about wanting to have some great opening. Forget about it. It's not helpful. We would simply point ourselves in that general direction. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. And then, moment to moment to moment, we practice. The greedy mind does not lead to samadhi. The critical mind does not lead to samadhi. Despairing mind. When those things arise, we simply note them, go back to the breath. Note them, back to the breath. Note them with no judgment, back to the breath. Note, back to the breath. Note, back to the breath. As I said yesterday, as we do this constantly coming back to the breath, we come back to the breath with greater and greater sensitivity, greater and greater awareness of how the breath perfuses the body, greater and greater awareness of the places in the body that are free and open. The breath moves freely through them. 
and we don't turn our mind to attacking, to trying to overcome, to trying to get through, to break up the parts that are congested, that feel tight, that feel tense. Don't worry about those. If we keep relaxing and relaxing, allowing the breath to breathe us, then things will soften all by themselves. Now there's an irony here, though, is that if you're working on one of these fundamental koans, like mu or like hu or one of these fundamental koans, it's not a matter of just idly sitting and idly, relaxedly watching the breath move. It's a matter we have to then look deeply into the breath. We have to look deeply into what is. That's not a matter of getting something else. It's not a matter of making something happen. It's not a matter of trying to make some result. It's simply a matter of not just allowing ourselves to be breathed, but really seeing into that breath. Who is the one who's breathing? Where does that knowledge rest? It's not a future thing at all. It's not a mental thing at all. It's simply a, f- a way of experiencing, experiencing more and more deeply. So we have this hot soaking tub. And we, before we get in, we stick our hand in the water. And we know as soon as our hand is in the water, whether it's hot or cold. And as we leave the hand in there a little bit, we can feel more and more how hot, how cold, how cool. And that's the same way we do with the breath. As we price our attention in the breath, we feel deeply into it. Let it settle there. Now we can use vows in a skillful way during a session. Not just the big vow of I will become enlightened for the sake of all beings, not that the arousing of bodhicitta. But we can use small vows in this kind of practical moment. So for example, we might say I'll vow to keep the mind on the breath, for one breath, half a breath, three breaths. In a way, it's, it's like setting up a high jump bar. We say, okay, I'll set the high jump bar here, and I will practice. I'll practice until I can jump over that bar. This is not about the goal of something big. It's about Can we stay with the breath for half a breath, one breath? Now, ideally, the mind and the breath are just one thing. But because we're still trying to figure out how to deal with this body and mind, we can set up little little challenges like that that will help inspire us to keep the mind focused for one breath, half a breath, three breaths, hundred breaths. And when we practice very minutely following the breath and following the breath, and we watch the mind just slide off, we come right back. And we say, okay, I'll do this. I'll hold it right there. I'll feel this intimately. Two and a half breaths, three breaths, five breaths. We can have those little challenges for ourselves. It helps keep the mind running off, keeps us engaged, keeps us interested in some, sometimes certain kind of people, that works very, very well to have those. But when we do that, we've got to make sure that we take, we make a a number that is very doable. We don't say, I vow to not have my mind move for the next hundred breaths. 
unless you have fairly great confidence in that. Because if we say we're going to do things and we don't do them, and we say we're going to do things and we don't do them, we say we're going to do something, we don't do them, we vow we're going to stay up all night and we don't stay up all night, and we vow we're going to hold our attention here and we don't do it, then gradually, subtly, our own confidence in our ability becomes eroded. So it's very important that when we say we'll do something, to pick something we can really do. Or pick something that we can work to do, a challenge that we can definitely meet. And if we do that, if we keep these little challenges going, we make these little challenges, then gradually our strength and our confidence and our ability to discern what's appropriate increases. So, if you vow to stay up all night, don't make that vow unless you have a pretty good sense that you can do that, that, it's, that you will do that. Don't make it out of a should or an ought. Instead, make a vow you'll stay up an hour later, for example. So gradually, 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 we set out reasonable intention and we keep it. Reasonable intention and we meet it. Reasonable intention. This is the path. We say, when we're walking, if you've done hiking, you might be very tired and you say, okay, I will walk to that next stone. I will jog to the crest of this hill. And we keep ourselves going to that point, not thinking beyond that. And at that point, we may decide to stop or to do something else. So these little, little goals that we can set up for ourselves, which we can do, are sometimes very helpful. So back to the breath. So we bathe the body in the breath. We bathe the breath with the body. Now, when we do this, there is, as we breathe, it's a whole series of muscle movements. And there is a series of, of sensations that sometimes we can feel of just minute particles or minute vibration or minute movement as we breathe out as you breathe in. And so when we say, I'm going to hold my attention on my breath, we don't just mean label it exhalation, <sighs> that's it. But it's more the, the, the little bitty particles of the breath, the little bitty movements of breath. We, we align the mind with the breath. As Chosen says, we slide down, slide down the breath freely. One of the things that happens as we do this is the mind keeps flitting in and says, Oh, I know a shortcut. Oh, there's an easier way to do this. Oh, this seems hard and boring. Maybe I'll just... And we fill in the blank with what our particular fantasy is. Or, I would rather work that way. And so we stop doing this meticulous, meticulous, meticulous investigation, and we start off climbing up the mountain, trying to find a shortcut across. This, there is no shortcut. You know, the, the, the American mind state often says, I want it, I want it fast, I want it my way. But when it comes to these deep levels of the mind, there is no shortcut. There's only the direct experience of the mind, moment after moment after moment. The 
direct experience of the body. So don't let yourself get, get distracted by if there's an easier way or a better way, or you hop from practice to practice thinking that I'll find the right practice and then it will be easier. It's never easy. It's always a challenge, regardless of what practice we do. Some days it's easier than other, than other days it is, but every practice has its own challenges. There's a story in the Pali Canon about the Buddha who was sitting and meditating one time, and this uh, beautiful deva named uh, Rohitasa suddenly appeared. She was beautiful and brilliant and great, great psychic powers. And she said to the Buddha that when she was a lot, that at one point she had decided that she was going to journey to the end of the universe. And that she had journeyed for a thousand years and never made it to the end of the universe and finally died some previous life. And then she asked the Buddha, is it possible to journey to the end of the universe? To journey to the end of the world? And the Buddha said, no, you can't do it by walking or flying. You can't do it by traveling. But unless you reach the end of the universe, you will never end suffering. And the Deva said, what? How how does that make make any sense? Tell me, explain more. And the Buddha said, this six-foot body, five-foot body in his case, is the world, is the origin of the world, is the cessation of the world, is the path leading to the cessation of the world. Cessation in this sense means nirvana. This body is nirvana. This body is the entire whole universe. This body, knowing this body and knowing this breath, is the cessation of suffering and delusion. So how large is our breath? We keep talking about breath and we talk about it in terms of this particular little body and mind. Because that's the way most of us actually work. We think, okay, my breath is in there. and First we start off thinking it's the air and then gradually we begin realizing it's the, the, the energy that's moving through us. and uh, It's not just the physicality of the movement, but there's actually energy that's constantly moving in and out of us, which really is uh, a larger part of the breath. But where does it come from? How far does it go out? We have a mental idea in ourself of ourself as this little being, this shape, this height, this lung capacity. But this is only an idea. This is only something that we have cobbled together out of the five skandhas, form, feeling, thought, choice, and consciousness. It's something we just cobble together. If we all know, if we look very carefully at the body, we don't see the whole body, thickness, weight, height, color, shape, smell. We don't see it all at one time. Instead, we see lots of bits of the body. We see an arm here and a leg there and a breath in and a breath out. And suddenly we're aware of the nose or the eyes or the ears or the bottom or the legs. And then because the mind has this function of being able to put things together, it puts these little bits together, which we see sequentially over time, and puts them together and makes up us. We're this made-up concatenation of sensation. When the mind actually begins to stop, when the mind slows down, this made-up of concatenation uh, begins to be more and more amorphous. 
the boundaries are not so big, not so small, I mean, not so tight. How big is our breath? How big are we? If our mind drops this notion of us being this little small thing, how big are we? To see that, we have to stop thinking. We have to let thought go. And we have to see directly. If tonight we go outside and we look at the sky, we see a star that's a hundred million light years away. We don't see that star way out there a hundred million light years from now. We see the star right in our own eye, right with our own mind. We look out the window and we see the trees. We don't see them out there. We see them in our own eyes, in our own breath, in our own being. Everything we experience is really very intimate. We don't experience anything out there. We have no nerve endings out there. We only experience things right here. So when we're breathing and we really look at the, where does the breath come from? Where does the energy come from? And we begin to let the mind expand, we see that we're actually very, 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 very big. In fact, if the mind is still and we look inside, we can't find a beginning. As soon as the mind starts thinking, it says, oh, well, here's the beginning. You know, you were born in, you know, whenever. Or you were sitting on this cushion thing. But if the mind isn't thinking and we're looking directly and saying, where do I stop and where does the world begin? There is no end. As we're breathing, we are breathing this whole room. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to make it up. That's just the way things are. We don't have to imagine that we are. Sometimes it's helpful just to to break up some of the fixed notions that we have. But the reality is we are breathing and we are seeing and we are spewing out the entire universe. Everything is in our mind. But there is no I. There is no one inside there. Look. Everything is experienced right here. But there is no one experiencing it. We all have thoughts. We all have feelings. We all have emotions. Who is the one who sees those thoughts and feelings and emotions? Who is the one who knows we're breathing? We can't find anyone in there. There's just the experience of breath, the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Just experience. There is an eye of awareness which has no location. And we have seen from that same eye of awareness since the moment we were born. It has never changed. It has never moved. It has never blinked even a millisecond of an eye. It is the same eye that we have seen from our, with from our birth all the way now, all day long, all night long. 
and the mind stops. And we turn our attention back, back, back. We trace back our awareness to its root. And we say, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. We turn it all the way back. What is it that breathes? What is it that's hearing right now? What is it that feels? What do we discover? Their mind is relaxed, large, not busy grasping at things, not judging, not pushing things away. There's spaciousness. It's the mind of non, the non-judgmental mind, the non-clinging mind. There's a certain ease, a certain contentment. When we are just with the breath, watching the breath move out and in, sometimes seeming small and sometimes seeming vast, sometimes moving with very great big movements and sometimes moving with very small movements. And it's all just on this big computer screen, just moving, moving, just changing. The eye which sees it does not move. So this breath that we have which we start off with thinking that it's a little bit of air going through this body, if we follow it, if we let go, if we experience it more and more and more deeply, it opens up and opens up and opens up and opens up and opens up. And this breath can be the beginning and the end of practice of life. Vimalakirti Sutra um, says this about meditation. Vimalakirti Sutra is one of the great Mahayana Sutras which we're studying outside of uh, Seshin. And this is a chapter uh, entitled The Disciples. And the Buddha, Vimalakirti, is a layman who's sick, great, wise, layperson. And uh, the Buddha knows that he's sick and he says, I want to send some of my disciples to go and talk to him, just inquire as to his health. And all the disciples have had run-ins with Vimalakirti and they're all very reluctant to go because they know his wisdom is so much greater than theirs. But this is the first, the first chapter of this with um, Sariputra. The Buddha turns to Sariputra and says, please go inquire as to Vimalakirti's health. And Sariputra, in, uh, in the earlier Buddhist teachings, Sariputra is, is regarded as an arhat, a fully enlightened being who is the embodiment of wisdom. And so... Sorry, Buddha is asking this, this embodiment of wisdom to go and talk to Vimalakirti. And the embodiment of wisdom is wisdom as is practiced uh, sequentially, that we have continual states of increasing purity and states of increasing concentration and states of increasing um, depth of practice, like we've often been talking about during this retreat. And Sariputra is the, the apex represents the apex of that kind of ever, ever deepening practice. So the Buddha immediately told Sariputra, go visit Vimalakirti and inquire about his illness. Sariputra addressed the Buddha, world honored one, I dare not accept your instruction to go inquire about his illness. Why? I remember once in the past when I was sitting in repose 
beneath the tree, when he was meditating beneath the tree. At the time, Vimala Kirti came to me and said, O Sariputra, you need not take this sitting in meditation to be sitting in repose. That is, it's not something separate. If it's something separate, if it's repose versus not repose, then it's a state. Don't take it as repose. Sitting in repose is not to manifest body and mind in the triple world. That is sitting in repose. Sitting in repose is to be so completely unjudgmental, undiscriminating, that everything, just as it is, is sitting in repose. And there is no one discriminated in the whole triple world of past, present, and future. It's Vimala Kirti's teaching. This is sitting in repose. To to generate the concentration of extinction while manifesting the the deportments, that is, while behaving in the world, this is sitting in repose. Not to relinquish the dharma of enlightenment and yet manifest the affairs of ordinary sentient beings, this is sitting in repose. To have the mind neither abide internally nor locate itself externally, this is sitting in repose. To be unmoved by the 62 mistaken views, yet cultivate the 37 factors of enlightenment. This is sitting in repose. Not to eradicate the afflictions, yet to enter into nirvana. This is sitting in repose. Those who are able to sit in this fashion receive the Buddha's seal of approval. To sit with non-discrimination, to not think this or that, I'm doing well or I'm not doing well, that this state right here is better than that state over there, that I'm making progress or I'm not making progress, to completely accept the whole thing with great faith while we continue to practice diligently. This sutra is a Mahayana sutra, and it keeps saying any discrimination at all, any judgment at all, any opinion at all, and you're dividing things. So to be able to function, to be able to do all the practices, be able to live one's life fully without having this inside that is saying yes and no, right and wrong, good and bad, but you're completely, completely one with whatever's going on. That is the state of mind of Zazen. And how do we do that? In a way, we can't do that. Because as soon as we start doing it, it's something out there. I want to achieve that, like we talked about at the beginning. There's the goal. I want to get the goal. And Mulakurti is saying you can't practice that way. It's when the goal is right here. This moment has got everything in it. This moment is past, present, and future. This moment is self and other. This moment's breath is neither large nor small. And how do we do that? We just breathe. We just feel. Just experience. No idea whether it's big or small. No idea whether we're alive or dead. Just present. This is the kind of teaching that... um, is given as part of the Mahayana and the, the Zen schools. And in a way, it's of course very true. But in a way, it's not very helpful. Because when we're, we're all trying to figure out how to actually practice and live our lives and we're caught in duality, then the sequential teachings of how do you concentrate, how do you take the first step, take the second step, are very, very helpful. But eventually, we have to make this leap of letting go. Another Zen teacher, Pao Chi, says, 
the master of the mind, the mind monarch is the way they translate it here, is independent and serene. The real nature is originally unbound. Everything without exception is Buddha work. Why should you concentrate thought in sitting meditation? Errant imaginations are originally empty and void. One need not cut off attention to objects. The wise have no mind to be grasped. They are naturally non-contentious and peaceful. If you do not know the great way of non-contrivance, when can you realize the hidden mystery? Buddhahood and ordinary life are of one kind. Ordinary beings are themselves Buddhas. The common man creates arbitrary distinctions clinging to the existence of what has none, rushing in confusion. When you realize that desire and anger are void and empty, what place is not a door to reality? All of the Mahayana Sutras say that there is nothing but the truth. That everything that arises is just the truth. That everything and every truth is completely empty. Not only will it arise, exist, and disappear, but it's empty even as it arises. Nothing, something does not come from nothing. Fantasies, phantoms come from fantasies and phantoms. The practice of Mahayana Buddhism is the practice of deep faith. When we don't have very much faith, then we have lots of techniques, lots of methods, lots of efforts, lots of paths, lots of ways of practice. But as our practice begins to deepen, and as our sense, our faith, in the very fact that we are alive, as that grows, then whatever comes, we practice with. Whatever comes is the truth. Whatever comes, we just respond to it. This is what this chant that we do in the evening is about. Just to choose whatever is present, whatever is present, whatever is present. It's my birth I choose to live. It's my death I choose to die. Whom I encounter I choose to meet. Or I shoulder I choose to bear. Do you want to study Zen? If so, you must let go. Let go of what? Let go of the four elements in the five clusters, that is, earth, fire, air, and water, and the five clusters of the five skandhas, form, feeling, thought, choice, and consciousness. Let go of consciousness, conditioned over incalculable time. Focus on right where you stand and try to figure out what the reason is, that is, the reason it exists, what is real. Keep on pondering, and suddenly the flower of the mind will bloom with enlightenment, illuminating the whole universe. This can be called getting it in the mind, responding to it in action. Thereupon you can turn the earth into gold and turn the rivers into cream. Wouldn't this make life exhilarating? Do not just memorize sayings, recite words, and discuss Zen and the way based on books. The Zen way is not in books. Even if you can recite the teachings of the whole canon, all 120 volumes of it, and all the masters and philosophers, they're just useless words of no avail, when you are facing death. The ancients sought illumined guides only after they themselves had awakened and understood. In order to pick out the rubble and completely purify the realization of truth. When they could measure pounds and ounces accurately, they were like people opening variety stores, carrying all sorts of goods.
We practice, we practice, we practice, we practice. We look into things as they are. And looking into does not mean, at first it means I am here looking into that. And then it means that is absorbing me. And then it means, like that first reading, there is no separation. There is just one thing. And then it means that if there is just one thing, there is no one to even know there is one thing, and even the one thing disappears. Like we were talking about, like the reading yesterday. Heaven and earth disappear. And then everything comes back again. And then we learn how to function. And lastly, before you have realized objects are only mind, you produce all sorts of discriminations. After you have realized objects are only mind, discrimination does not arise. When you know that all things are only mind, then you let go of the forms of external objects. What about the earth, the mountains and rivers, light and dark, matter and space? When all things right before you, what principle of letting go can you speak of? Even if you understand this, you are still just halfway. You must realize that there is yet another opening beyond. As long as something exists, we have more to go. So at this stage of a retreat, we have to practice both ways simultaneously. We have to practice the great way of faith, mysterious and unknowable. The great way of faith, that is faith, because there is this experience. There's faith. And simultaneously, we have to practice the way of keeping the attention focused and focused and looking in and looking in and coming back to and coming back to and coming back to. When we can do the coming back to with great faith, there's a great outcome. When we can practice great faith by coming back and coming back and coming back, there's a great outcome. Please, at this stage of retreat, things are beginning to be very settled, very deep, calm. Do not judge. Do not evaluate. Do not decide you are hopeless or you're making progress or that you are doing wonderfully or you're not. Just keep breathing with deep faith because you have a breath.